0: DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We have a panel of great journalists coming to us from Washington, D.C., from Savannah, Georgia, From Atlanta to talk about the political news of the day. And I'm going to introduce them in just a moment. But before I do, I just want to very uh, quickly uh, do what I think many of us are doing today. And that is to say thank you uh, for those veterans, to you who served this country, um, and to those who've lost family, lost friends, lost uh, people close to them who served the country and gave their lives. We're thinking about all of you today. Uh, It's especially appropriate that we're talking about Max Cleland a lot this week. He, of course, volunteered to serve in the Vietnam War as an infantryman and paid a heavy, heavy price uh, for that. Just a quick historic note that I think is worth mentioning. Um, The first armistice day Uh, took place on November 11th, 1918. Uh, That was the day, actually, that hostilities between the Allies and Germany went into effect, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, even though the Treaty of Versailles wasn't signed until uh, the following year. But just quickly, here's what President Wilson said when he proclaimed November 11th as the first commemoration of Armistice Day. To us in America the reflections of Armistice Day will be filled with solemn pride in the heroism of those who died in the country's service and with gratitude for the re- victory both because of the thing from which it has freed us and because of the opportunity it has given America to show her sympathy with peace and justice in the council of the nation and our veterans have been serving with pride and honor uh, for years since then and Um, We now always mark Veterans Day on November 11th, no matter which day of the week it stands on. Um, So thank you, veterans, for your service. Uh, We're joined today by Kevin Riley, my Thursday partner partner on the show. Of course, he is the editor, the boss of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hi, Kevin.
2: Hey, good morning, Bill. You know, your World War I uh, reflection there uh, uh, has a connection for me because I am rereading the authoritative book by Barbara Tuchman about how World War One oh. began called The Guns of August. I highly recommend anyone who is ever interested in history or uh, even global politics. It is the authoritative Pulitzer Prize winning account of how Europe, Europe's
1: leaders bumbled into that war. Absolutely. What, I'm so glad you mentioned it. One of the great, great American history books. Um, it is a, 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 a really powerful, wonderful book. Um, We're joined also today by GPB News public policy reporter Riley Bunch. Riley, thank you for being here.
0: Thanks for having me, Bill, and happy Veterans Day to everyone.
1: Yeah. Tia Mitchell is here. She, of course, is the Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And uh, (laughs) Tia, there aren't too many journalists quite as busy as you've been in the recent weeks.
3: Well, hello, everyone. And yes, the Kevin Riley is just keeping me so busy. And you should tell him I need a raise.
1: <laughs> I think he's listening. By the way, Tia, I've really enjoyed seeing you. You've been uh, popping up a lot on CNN uh, in the uh, afternoons, and I've really enjoyed hearing your commentary. Uh, over there. So it's been great to see you, uh, and I, I hope people will get a chance, to, if they do, if they listen to you but never get to see you, they should check you out on CNN at some point.
3: Well, thank you.
1: Okay. We're also joined from the coast by Adam Van Brimmer, who, of course, is the editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News. Um, Adam, thank you for being here today. It's always a pleasure to be with you, um, Bill, and to... Give a
4: little bit of a viewpoint from from this
1: end of Georgia. Absolutely, um, a, an important part of the state for all of us. All right, let's get right to it, um, Kevin Riley. The you know it's interesting right now that the we know about some of the declared candidates for governor. I mean, we know Brian Kemp is going to uh, seek reelection. He's already officially announced. Um, we know that um, he's going to have you know, token opposition. It appears token opposition at this point, but there are rumors that um, David Perdue may want to jump into this thing. And the Jolt just this morning reported, and we'll get to this second, that there is some reason that some Democrats wonder if Stacey Abrams is actually going to run. So my point was to say, uh, there's as much rumor circulating around the governor's race of Georgia as there is actual factual information, Kevin. But uh, that said... Um, uh, Governor Kemp did the other day rally around him, law enforcement leaders from across the state to emphasize they're with him. Should David Perdue be thinking about getting into this race?
2: Yeah, I think Kemp is trying to make it clear that he has a lot of support, that he will be a tough opponent and that Republicans would really hurt themselves uh, if he's forced into a serious primary challenge. Um. But he he just has this problem with President Trump looming out there. President Trump calling for people to run against him. President Trump uh, criticizing him, and he can't run as uh, someone who supports Trump. He's clearly in another spot, and so I just you know whether he likes it or not, uh, Purdue is there, and uh, I, it seems to not want to actually say he's not going to run. So it's a it's a strange time uh, for the governor. And uh, you really wonder um, whether
1: the Republicans can stick together on this. Adam, uh, you wrote a column uh, about this the other day. If you don't mind my quoting your words back to you, you wrote, Georgia Republicans set a new standard for self-destructive political behavior in the 2020 election and runoff. The saboteurs seem intent on further undermining their party in 2022. Word is that David Perdue is the rube meant to challenge election scapegoat Brian Kemp in the 2022 Republican gubernatorial primary. This is the same David Perdue who just 10 months ago lost to a little-known political newcomer, John Ossoff, in a U.S. Senate runoff. And you finish that part of the piece by saying somewhere Stacey Abrams, interior designer, is finalizing redecorating plans for the governor's mansion.
4: Yeah, it's— it's really an amazing story, and I got to give credit to, to Greg Blustein and and then Patricia Murphy at the AJC for for bringing that to light. And after I read that, of course, I reached out to some contacts I, I have down this way. And of course, they said, "Yeah, we've we've heard it too. We think there's there's something to it." And that kind of prompted me to to move forward. But it it just it boggles it. Quite frankly, it boggles the mind because Donald Trump cost David Perdue a Senate seat. And now David Perdue is going to do his bidding. I just – I don't understand um, the whole mindset behind what has gone on, not only during the Trump administration with the Republican Party, but since Trump left office with the Republican Party. They are a party that is, that is completely adrift, and um, you know, here, here we are with the Democrats. We saw last week what happened in Virginia, what happened in New Jersey. The Democrats are basically giving them a gift for the midterms, which, you know, usually the party that's not in power makes gains in midterms anyway. Here you have a Democrat uh, party that's not doing very well in terms of governing in a lot of people's minds. And here you have the Republicans kind of sabotaging themselves. And it just it's a real it's a real head scratcher.
1: Riley, let's add to the picture here that um, David Perdue was down on the coast. He was in Brunswick. Uh, recently talking to a group of uh, Republicans. And he said to them, uh, Georgia already has a governor. And he said, I want a unified Georgia. I want a unified Republican Party. Um, some people took that as a sign that he has no intention really of running. But, but, but um, the AJC Talked to some of his allies who said, don't necessarily take that as a sign he's not interested. He might decide to jump into this race at any point between now and qualifying.
0: Well, I definitely wish I was in the room to hear the context of those comments, right? But I think Adam hit the nail on the head. David Perdue, um, last election cycle was also kind of the victim of this GOP infighting, right? So it would be kind of, it, for me, it would be interesting to see him jump into this role of, um, challenging Governor Kemp, the incumbent, right? And, and kind of falling back into this, trap of the trump gop in georgia and i, I while i may be skeptical that purdue would jump into that role i think that there is um this message from the republican party that hey we might find a better primary a better candidate to go up against governor kemp but i i don't think that would be the wisest thing to do as Purdue said, they they really need a unified party right now
3: pia yeah i agree even though Purdue would be running as the Trump-backed alternative to Kemp. I think Purdue's decision on whether or not to run is will would be influenced much more by his former colleagues, Mitch McConnell and Rick Scott, than some allegiance to President Trump rick scott and mitch mcconnell the leaders of the republican party in the senate um rick scott being over the campaign arm for republican candidates for senate are looking um for the good of the party if you will they're worried that brian kemp could be taken out in a primary or is weak against Stacey abrams so i think there's just um, and I'm not saying they're right, but there is that worry that, particularly with Trump, if Trump does to Brian Kemp what he did to Leffler and Purdue in January, that would further harm um, Brian Kemp. So I think they're looking for a stronger alternative. Um, and I think if Purdue runs, it will be because his former colleague convinced him. That aligning with Trump is the way to do it i um you know, I think there was is a lot of evidence that purdue um wasn't as enthusiastic towards the end of the runoff um, but the the appeal of being governor might allow him to put aside perhaps any personal concerns he may have to win the race, knowing that this is the way you have to do it.
1: Kevin, jump in.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Tia makes a, a really good point, which is um, there's got to be genuine fear mm-hmm. of of Kemp losing the governorship among Republican leaders. Um, and we know the, the, I mean, there are the, we're going to get into the questions about whether Stacey Abrams is going to run, but we know that there doesn't seem to be a political figure that strikes fear, and anger into the hearts of Republicans more than Stacey Abrams. So the feeling, you know, that, that we just have to have an absolutely uh, perfect candidate. And, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, I suppose being the chief executive of a state like Georgia is potentially much more appealing, than like David Perdue, who has a career as a CEO— and found himself one of 100 people in the Senate and very, I think, often very frustrated, right, Tia, about being able to get things done that he wanted to do because it's tough to get, you know, 99 other people to agree with you or at least 60 of them. And he, uh, or and maybe he wants to be CEO of Georgia instead.
3: Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of appeal. I mean, I used to live in Florida where Rick Scott went from CEO to governor. You know, Republicans love putting business executives into government. They think they know how to run government better. And quite frankly, David Perdue was a successful business executive. Um, So I think people believe his resume would align with what Republicans say they want in an executive of the state. He also does have the track record of defending Trump to the end, which would help him with his base. Um, You know, I don't know if in a matchup against Stacey Abrams, he brings a lot more to the table than Brian Kemp. But again, if if he and Kemp are are similar in a matchup against Stacey Abrams, where Purdue perhaps has the edge, is that he has he would have the backing of Donald Trump, where we know Kemp doesn't.
1: So Adam, the um, the people who are uh, promoting the idea, and they're doing it anonymously for the most part. That uh, David Perdue should jump into this race have said they've seen uh, they've got some polling numbers that suggest he would do better uh, in in a fight uh, against Stacey Abrams than Brian Kemp would, um, and certainly if Donald Trump decides at any point between now and uh, the primary next year to once again repeat his threat that if that Republicans should stay away from the poll. If polls, if they feel that the election in Georgia, the fake election in Georgia hasn't been uh, turned around, all of that could really be not. But it it wouldn't only be difficult for Brian Kemp. It would be difficult for all those Republicans on the ballot who have aligned themselves with Donald Trump. So in that case, I'm not sure whether it's David Perdue or Brian Kemp. It would make a whole lot of difference if Trump is telling people to stay away from the polls. That's right,
4: because that's what happened with with Leffler and Purdue. Right? Was he right. in a rally just days before the election? Goes and and talks about you know your your vote doesn't count, and uh, what was the count? About a hundred thousand people that voted in November. A hundred thousand Republicans that voted in November didn't vote in January, or something like that. I'm probably butchering the number, but needless to say, it was a number that made a difference. So the yeah, the answer is is to is to have one candidate. And have Trump, just like what Youngkin did in Virginia,
1: is keep Trump at arm's length. Which Brian Kemp could do more easily than David Perdue can. Riley, jump in. Good thing.
0: Well, I think that it just kind of demonstrates the crossroads that the GOP is at in Georgia, right? Do you want a candidate that's going to fall behind Donald Trump and win over his base, but potentially suppress, lose the voters that he suppresses? Or do you want a candidate that can be more successful against Stacey Abrams? And I think that puts the uncertainty also on the Democratic party that we're talking about upcoming um, in the show is, is Stacey Abrams going to run? How do you play the long game as a GOP candidate? assuming that Stacey Abrams is going to run, right? You know, there there's these questions that are still looming.
1: That's right. And thank you for taking us to our next topic. Tia Mitchell, as we were all talking right before the show went on the air, you hit the button to publish the jolt on the AJC website. And the lead item in it uh, is a recounting of a Newsweek cover story on Stacey Abrams in which somebody who called themselves an advisor— to Stacey Abrams, said that Stacey Abrams has a plan to run for president in 2024 if Biden does not, or in 2028 if he does. This is just going to lend fuel to those who wonder why Abrams has been so coy about not jumping into this governor's race uh, by now.
3: Yeah, and I, you know, I think we need to make clear that the person was anonymous, so we have no idea how close to Stacey Abrams they really are. Um, Also, Stacey Abrams' um, actual spokesman talked directly to um, us at the Jolt and said, you know, this is speculation, Um, she hasn't announced anything, but what that spokesman said Seth Brinkman didn't say was that, like, it's false. It's not true. So I don't even know if his statements are um, are going to, you know, really quash this speculation. I do think perhaps it, you know, I don't run Stacey Abrams, and she seems to be doing quite well on her own with, you know, glowing profiles in national publications, a national tour. Um, but if she I think it's coming soon that she's going to need to make a decision and let it known. Number one, because people will continue to write her story for her when it comes to what she plans on doing. Um, and I think there is frustration, because if she doesn't want to do it, and that's her business, that's her right, the longer she waits to make that plain, the more it's screwing over Democrats. Um, but mm-hmm. I do think if she if she does plan on doing it, I know it behooves her personally to wait, but it also could backfire and make things so, a little bit more complicated than they had to be.
1: Okay, so Adam, and then Kevin, I, I, I'd like to get you guys on this. Adam, I think we all should take a deep breath. Uh, As I said at the start, there seems to be rumors that are having more impact right now and circulating about the governor's race than reality. We have no idea whether David Perdue is really going to get into the race or not. We don't know Stacey Abrams' intentions. That's true. But the reason I say we ought to take a deep breath is Adam, these are the kinds of stories that we as journalists, I mean, when you've got, when you don't have a lot of substance to report on in a political campaign, when you don't have, you know, one candidate facing off against the other at this point, these stories uh, gather more steam and become of more interest, and not just to us, but to all those people out there who follow. Politics, which kind of is what Tia is saying when she says maybe Stacey Abrams needs to speak up soon, so that she says what her agenda is. It doesn't keep getting out there uh, from people who think they know. Yeah, and for a for a candidate with the
4: <clears throat> excuse me with the with a candidate with the name recognition of Stacey Abrams, we're still very very early in the election cycle. You know, she doesn't need to be going out there and 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 introducing herself to the public. Uh, the uh, the qualifying is in March of next year. We still got plenty of plenty of time to go, but at the same time, we just finished one election last week that, uh, at least in Atlanta, was extremely high profile. It was going to be high profile as they had a the runoff here in Savannah. Um, not so much, but you know we have what looks like a competitive first district congressional race, and people are already talking about it. So, I think what you're getting at is that you know there's a vacuum. And we're filling it. And in terms of the governor's race and Stacey Abrams, and then, of course, uh, not to steal anybody's thunder, but uh, as the AJC talked about, and I think he did it on your show, Bill, as Michael Thurman may be interested. And so you'd like to think that they will, that Stacey Abrams will make an announcement sooner rather than later. But again, it's not really any rush for her, especially looking at what is a a very um, broad future for her and what she could do.
1: Yeah, it what, Kevin, was. kind of surprised, Patricia Murphy and I were kind of surprised last Friday when Mike Thurmond was on the show and he was asked whether he was thinking of making a run for governor if Stacey doesn't. And he basically didn't dodge it. He basically made it clear that he was considering doing just that.
2: Well, you know, Michael is a uh, is, is, as has been pointed out, is, is a sharp guy who's accomplished a lot and he knew exactly what he was doing. I mean, let's let's be honest. This is a guy who's one statewide has been, uh, you know, navigated some very difficult positions and political situations. He knows exactly what he's doing. It is sort of in its way humorous that Georgia has its own version of waiting for Godot. I mean, uh, Bill, it's sort of (laughs) reminiscent of, you know, back when everyone was waiting for Mario Como to decide whether he was going to run for president. So here we are with Stacey Abrams, the, the latest person to jump into that role. And, um, you know, there's two schools of thought is, you know, she doesn't have to hurry. She can let the Republicans stay confused and wondering. She'll have the money. She'll have the name recognition. And then, you know, the other school is, gosh, maybe she's really not going to do it. And she's found that she can either have more influence in another way or is interested in a different path. Uh, but, yeah, you know, we're really super interested in it, and I just don't think your average voter is even thinking about it at all, probably yet. So
1: all right, we're gonna to get to the first break. But before we do, Kevin Riley, you you talk about Mario Cuomo and the wait for him to decide on running for president. I'd like to really take you back in time. I remember when we all in Georgia, who covered politics, we were waiting for, was to learn whether Vince Dooley was going to run for the United <laughs> States Senate. And that was a very, very long time ago. By the way, Coach Dooley decided against making a race. We're going to take our first break and be back with more on Political Rewind in a moment. <laughs> We continue now with a great panel of journalists Tia Mitchell, Washington journal, uh, correspondent for the AJC, Adam Van Brimmer, Savannah Morning News editorial page editor, Riley Bunch, our public policy reporter at GPB News, and Kevin Riley, the editor of the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Um, Adam, I'd like to start with you because you have a front row seat for looking at the backup at the port of Savannah, like all American ports, or I think most of them, there is a tremendous backup, uh, container ships that are waiting for literally days to be able to unload cargo at the port. It is really having a major impact on the economy of the United States right now. What are you seeing as you watch this unfold down there, Adam? I'm seeing containers
4: stacked in places I've never seen them before. You know, that's a uh... Savannah, there's two main ports, and one is really close to downtown, really close to River Street. If you've been to Savannah, the big bridge, the Thomas Bridge, it is across the river. There's a terminal right there underneath that bridge, and that terminal is usually reserved for roll-on roll-off vehicles, so new cars, heavy equipment, what have you. Well, with with the backup in the supply chain, that yard is now taking the the more traditional cargo ships with containers. And they are stacking those containers on that yard to the point where you, you when you leave downtown heading west, you go over a, a a bridge that goes up over the yard. and you're going across that bridge now, you are looking up at containers, which is which is kind of kind of a crazy thing. but you know it looks like they're going to get some money to to do some remote some satellite yards here as part of the infrastructure bill. There's a press conference here on Friday where they are going to to talk a little bit about that and what their plans are. But, you know, it's one of those things, and we saw it it in L.A., is that right now the people downstream, so the retailers, the distributors, they're leaving their containers at the port because they have nowhere to put them. And so it's one of those things that there's a huge logjam there to the point that uh, the the ports are filling up. So what do the ports do? Do they start? charging a surcharge for you to leave your container past a certain day and try to monetize it and try to, to do what they can at the risk of alienating business, or do they just wait it out? But I can tell you, I was, I was out at Tybee on the weekend, and uh, the entrance to the Savannah River is right there. Tybee, of course, if you're on the beach, you can see the ships waiting, and, and they're, just, they're just lined up waiting for their opportunity to come upriver to the port, but it's a, it's a mess.
1: Riley, both you um, and Tia have uh, looked at this issue. You uh, at GPB News say that um, the, back, the backlog is uh, partly due to shortage of truck drivers, equipment, warehouse workers. Your reporting says there are about 83,000 shipping containers stacked across the port um, and that it's 22,000 higher than the port's preferred maximum, Riley,
0: Yeah, and we heard all this in front of a Senate committee this week, a Rural Development Committee, Georgia Ports kind of painted a a dim picture, right? 83,000 container cargoes, that's just very shortly under 85,000, which they said was their peak, right? Um, And at the the time, what they like to have is about 61,000. So these are crazy numbers. And and it's a, are we going to get our Christmas things that we ordered for our family, um, right? These are big questions, and Georgia Ports does not have an answer to these questions, right? Because a lot of these factors that are playing into this backlog are out of control. We have a nationwide shortage of truck drivers, was another testimony that lawmakers heard. Um, but we are seeing hopefully some planning on the federal government side. I know Tia knows the it's mini-gritty of the infrastructure bill probably better than I do, but there's some um, changes in there that allows the port authority to allocate about eight million dollars to pop up container yards, um, five of them in Georgia and in North Carolina across the two. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully, right, this will leave some of the backlog. But the answer, Georgia port authorities don't have the answer to the question is when is this going to be fixed?
3: Yeah, I think that. You know, it's one of those things that the federal government is receiving. You know, there's a lot of pressure on the Biden administration to address the supply chain issues that are one of the factors contributing to inflation and rising prices. But, you know, it's easier said than done because the, you know, even in your article, Riley, you know, the the issues are very complex. Some of it's a workforce issue when it comes to not having enough truck drivers, um, which is one of those very um, niche jobs that require a special type of training and a special type of lifestyle. And there just aren't enough long haul truck drivers in America. Um, And that's not something the Biden administration can just, you know, wave its magic wand and fix right away. But, um, you know, there's a lot of pressure with especially with prices going up and the supply chain issues. There's a lot of pressure on the federal government to try to address it. We'll see if um, some of the policies in the infrastructure bill and other executive orders that the White House has also been putting out lately start to help that issue.
2: I do think it puts the Biden administration in a tough spot. I mean, uh, and, and, and of course, Georgia's economy in an even tougher spot because there's all this hope with the infrastructure bill. And, you know, I know in the reporting, uh, Riley, and it indicates, hey, they might be able to do something in 60 to 90 days as money's going to be available. But this all goes back to the pandemic and it all started there and it's it continues to fall out. But I counted on the calendar today, and I think I have this right, Christmas is in 44 days. So I think the chances that this really special gift that I ordered for my wife that is on, in some container in Savannah makes it to get me out of trouble on Christmas morning, uh, it's, I don't think it's going to happen. I think I better find something in a local store instead and try to see if I can save, uh, save my relationship that way because I just don't think this is something that gets solved quickly.
4: Adam. Yeah, I, I think I can I can close the loop on that a little bit. Bill is we got so we saw a story in the Charlotte Observer of uh, a retailer up there that basically had what Kevin was talking about. Had to they had some goods stuck in a container in Savannah and couldn't get them to Charlotte. They actually hired a truck driver and sent the truck driver to Savannah mm-hmm. to pick up that specific container to bring it to them, so that they made sure that that they had it in time. So. We have that we have that going on. It's just it's not an easy problem. I think Tia hit it on the head. Is everybody talks about inflation right now, and the supply chain disruption is is a, is a large source of that inflation. And if Biden, I don't know how much what how much they can do, but whatever they they can do, they need to do it before Christmas to keep people from uh, being very very upset.
1: Yep. Riley, I'm really glad that that the conversation has turned toward the impact that this has on all of us out there. This is not just some sort of supply chain problem in a very general, generic sort of way. This is affecting the cost of goods, and this is certainly affecting whether Kevin Riley is able to buy that, get that gift for uh, his wife uh, in time for Christmas. So this has practical impacts on our lives.
0: Well, I, you know, going back to what Kevin said, this is something that we have seen in the pandemic, but in different ways, right? So we're in the early days of the pandemic when we couldn't find toilet paper, we couldn't find Clorox wipes because we did not have any, right? The U.S. did not have any of those coming in. Now we have so much stuff and not enough people to move it. You know, the supply and demand issues, we're having the same fallout, but in kind of different ways. And it it really does impact the things that we can get. There was a, um, uh, someone from Georgia Tech uh, talking to lawmakers. And he said, you, you'll you be able to get the simple stuff. You want to go to Home Depot for a nail. You're going to be able to get that. But the new video game console, not so sure. Right. So it, it really does impact our daily lives and kind of looping back to the political aspect of this. And in terms of the Biden administration facing the pressure to get this fixed, it gives a lot of ammo to the Republicans, this supply chain issue. So I think that's also a concern for him.
1: Just to put a finishing touch on this topic, Tia, one of the things that's interesting about this is, and and this is a subject, by the way, that uh, with our panel tomorrow, I'm going to go into with them in a lot more depth, but the Biden administration has been getting heavily criticized for its communication strategy about the infrastructure bill and the social policy agenda. They haven't made it clear. It's all about the numbers, you know, 1.7 billion, 3.5 billion. It isn't about specific projects. And here's an example of where the Biden administration, if in fact they are going to be able to send some of the infrastructure money fairly quickly to the Port of Savannah, among others, that's something. And the free up goods and services that need to get out, that's a message that will give them a little bit of, of leverage as they move forward with a, with a measure some of which isn't the money isn't going to be seen in terms of highways, bridges, whatever for years.
3: Right. Yeah, I think, you know, the infra infrastructure bill is something that is going to take a while for people on the street to feel and see, which is why Democrats this week are kind of ramping up their communication on what's in it because I think they do realize that People at home don't understand what the infrastructure bill actually does. They don't understand what what the bill that Better bill, which is the social spending and climate change bill, actually does. Um, And I think it's harder to cut through the noise of everything else to get people to sit down and listen to a dissection of what's in a piece of legislation. Um, It's just the hard part of governing, the hard part of communicating communicating, especially when you have to realize that the Biden administration is saying one thing about the infrastructure bill, Republicans are saying something very different. And so um, people at home are getting dueling messages on whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, But the Biden administration can do better. I think they realize that, you know, he went to Baltimore yesterday and we see people like Lucy McBath and the Democratic Party of Georgia and Senators Warnock and Ossoff trying to get out in their districts, Um, but I don't know how much it's breaking through.
1: Okay. Uh, by the way, I think I said billion. Of course, I'm I meant trillion. I kind of recoil every time I try to, to think about those numbers, but it's, it's even bigger than I first uh, mentioned. Why don't we do this? Why don't we get the final break of our show out of the way right now and come back with more with our panel of journalists on today's Political Rewind. <laughs> Kevin Riley, the uh, trial of the three men accused of uh, murdering Ahmad Arbery continues uh, down in Brunswick. And um, uh, we're going to watch how that plays out in the weeks ahead. But we've seen testimony uh, this week from law enforcement officials, from police, who were early on the scene and uh, began talking with the McMichaels and with Roddy Bryant, about their involvement in this. And I think it's been a little uh, shocking to many of the observers that w- they seem to approach this based on the video that, that the jury has been shown and that we've all gotten to see. They seem to approach it uh, first in terms of the way they questioned the McMichaels and then in the way they dealt with Ahmad Arbery lying dying on the street. Uh, not offering him immediate aid. And I think that's, um, to some extent, shocked the conscience of people watching this unfold.
2: Yeah, and Bill, just to make sure listeners are completely up to date, so today is day five of the trial. And today uh, uh, the jurors are going to see a uh, uh, four-hour deposition from Larry English. That's a guy who owned the house that was being built that Ahmed Arbery uh, was in, and 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 that the uh, the the uh, defendants reacted to, but all that said, I mean, what the prosecution has clearly decided to do was present the jurors and and therefore the public with just the brutality and tragedy and just the shocking nature of someone killed in this manner. I mean, often um, those details are left out of news reports for one reason or another. I mean, people, a lot of people did see the video, but the account of the officer arriving on the scene and what it was like, I think, did, um, I don't know if the word is shock. It's somewhere, it's either shock or upset or just bring home that, you know, we, we can view the idea of someone being killed from a distance and not realize how horrible it actually is.
1: Adam, yeah, I mean, I, I watched the uh, video, the body cam video of the officer who first arrived and began questioning uh, Greg McMichaels. And it didn't feel like the investiga- an interrogation of an officer asking uh, question- formal questions. It seemed like just two guys kind of casually talking about what unfolded. And unfortunately, the officer has been pr- criticized fairly heavily for his um, kind of casual approach to this. He he had a casual approach, but just think about think about what the responses
4: were and how, uh, in my opinion, pretty damning they are. I mean, it just really kind of shows the, the whole attitude around this. It may say something about the Clallam B- County police. I kind of you'd like to try to give the guy the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, he he was kind of feeling out the suspect and was and was doing what he could to to get the get the complete story. But at the same time, it's it. Every time that we're, obviously we're covering this very closely and it just gets uh, it gets sadder and sadder uh, ever, with every every passing day and every piece of testimony that we hear.
1: Well, I wanted to ask first you and then Tia, who's observing this with all of the people up on the Hill in Washington. First you, Adam, how how are, is, are you hearing a lot from from your readers, from the public in Savannah about about the case? And how are they how are they digesting this?
4: It, the web the web analytics say that they are very, very interested. Um, the public commentary is – you don't hear a lot about it. Uh, I think uh, the jury selection was a big topic around here and how it turned out to be uh, with 11, 11 white uh, jurors and, and one black juror and the fact that there was eight of the nine black jurors were struck for by the defense attorney. So that, that really drew – drove some conversation. And of course with Reverend Sharpton down in Brunswick yesterday, that drove some conversation. But in terms of the, the trial itself, the testimony, I think everybody's almost, uh, they're holding their breath. They don't want to, they don't want to talk about it for fear of, you know, what might happen. And they're kind of, they're keeping their, keeping their powder dry, I guess, so, so to speak.
3: I, yeah. I, you know, as a black person, watching this trial unfold watching the testimony to me it just continues to strike me that um some of the issues with policing and um disparities in how black people are treated by law enforcement versus white people and privilege and race and all these things that black people have been talking about a lot in recent years. And it's easy to dismiss them as overreaction. It's easy to dismiss them as like black people making an issue where, when there is none. But what do you say when you see this testimony, hear the words? How can you continue to dismiss when black people say they are treated differently, um, both being victimized in different ways and also not having the same expectation that the justice system will work for them. And I just hope people are paying attention. Again, we don't know what the outcome is going to be, but if nothing else, the reality of what happened, just the facts themselves lay bare that black people have a different interaction with policing, the justice system, moving in white spaces. And perhaps we can absorb that more.
0: I think, you know, kind of going back to what Adam said, that there is, the fatigue around this case, which is very extremely unfortunate, right? You know, it took so long for there to be arrests made. The pandemic pushed it so far in advance. When, when I was down um, in Brunswick ahead of the trial the weekend before, the family members were asking, hey, don't leave us now. You know, keep this court up, keep going. Um, but there was very low turnout for their rallies down there. And I, I think it's hard because us watching it, f- playing so close attention to the graphic images, to seeing all these things play out, this horrifying story play out again in front of our eyes, you know, we see the change that this could bring and the, the level of um, just how important this case is, but it is interesting to hear Adam say that there is so much kind of fatigue surrounding that I wonder if that continues throughout the trial.
1: We will watch the trial as it continues to unfold. Uh, so thank you all for uh, weighing in on that. Um, I want to turn to a, a, a subject much more political again, and that's redistricting, which continues under the Gold Dome downtown Atlanta. Um, Riley, the um, the Senate has already passed its map, uh, redistric- redrawing lines in the state Senate, and there are very few changes there. The Democrats may pick up a couple seats, uh, but but it's pretty much status quo there. Uh, and now the House has passed a map as well, and while we can't really go into specific districts very easily on the show, uh, we can start with these numbers. As of right now, there are 103 uh, districts in Georgia that lean Republican, 77 that lean Democratic. Under the new map, there would be 97 that lean Republican, a loss of three, and those three would go to Democrats, 83 to uh, Democrats. And Chuck F. who's been a frequent panelist on this show, when asked about this map, uh, said this, quote, this is a reflection of the growth in minority populations in the state of Georgia. Our states increased diversity and compliance with the Voting Rights Act. This is a good map. But, but, um, this... The, uh, the House remains 67 percent white, even though only about 50 percent of the overall population of the state is white. So weigh in on this for us.
0: Well, I think we're seeing, you know, what we expected to see. The House has a little bit more to work mm-hmm. with than the Senate in terms of number of districts that they can move around. And it was um, I think David Ralston might be playing the long game a little bit. Right. You, you have to think about they're going to have these maps for the next 10 years. Um, is it wise to, they gave Democrats a few seats, right? They're going to give them a few seats now. They'll comply to um, the, the rules around growing population and keeping uh, minorities in their districts, things like that. But in terms of representation of this, State, it's still skewed, right? Republicans still have a majority of the state. White Republicans still represent a majority of the state where elections show that it's getting closer and closer, you know, to the 50-50 split of Republicans and Democrats statewide. Um, so it, it wasn't, it's it surprising what we saw come out of the House and it, you know, it's sent over to the Senate, gonna get the rubber stamp of approval, but Democrats did pick up a few potential seats.
1: Kevin Riley, uh, one of the stories we have all been following uh, is what happens when you cross the Speaker of the House in Georgia, Representative uh, Philip Singleton from uh, Sharpsburg, a Republican who's been critical of uh, Ralston, opposes his leadership. Uh, has uh, basically been drawn out of the district he's represented where he had strong Republican support and his district now moves north to Fulton County where he'll face an incumbent Democrat. Let me just, Kevin, before I ask you a comment, uh, let me play what Philip Singleton had to say. Sam bermas Dawes found this uh, from Singleton.
4: It's important to note that with 88 hours of meetings, 30-plus uh, hours of public hearings, 900 plus comments. Um, Not one single amendment uh, was submitted to the committee uh, to adjust these maps. Uh, All of this, everything on these maps uh, was done behind closed doors with a select few. Uh, It's also worth noting um, that trying to provide comments and input on maps that you haven't seen and that haven't been published is like asking an editor to edit a book with no draft. It's an impossible task and, frankly, political theater.
1: So, so Kevin Singleton is a Republican, um, but uh, he, he really says the same thing the Democrats have been saying. Why do you stop moving this thing so fast? Give us a chance to really digest the maps. The Republican answer to that has been, hey, we can't help it that the census data came so late. we got to get this done so people can be set for primaries uh, in next spring.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, uh, you know, I've been trying to think of a way to explain this. It feels like a recent football game I watched where (laughs) in a very close game, one team was driving to take the lead and the other team let them score quickly so that they would have enough time to come back. So what the Republicans are doing is strategically uh, ceding some ground to the Democrats because they sort of know how the population is going to shift and then creating maps and a and a process that lets them remain in power. I mean, it's I mean, setting aside what you think of it, the strategy is hard not to admire at a certain level.
1: Adam, you uh, you told us before the show that uh, Savannah's going to make some gains uh, with these new maps.
4: Well, I guess it depends on your perspective. The way the, the new maps look in the Senate is Savannah has long been divided, or Chatham County has long been divided between two senators. And the way the new maps are drawn, the um, the senator to the north, which represents parts of Effingham County, parts of uh, Bullock County where Statesboro is, his district under the new maps will stretch down into the west part of Chatham County into the city of Pooler, which of course is one of the fastest growing cities in the state and also the city of Bloomingdale. So uh, we're trying to kind of (laughs) unpack what the impact of that is. Obviously, having three representatives for your county in the Senate sounds like it's better than than two, but uh, we we really need to to dig in and look at the ramifications and, and figure out how that goes. I know from talking to the Democratic senator here in Chatham County yesterday, he expressed some reservations because he basically would be bringing in someone that is not familiar with Chatham County and giving them a seat at the table. And I I think that might be a little bit small minded, but at the same time, we've got to unpack it and figure out if that's actually the case.
1: All right. Um, so we, we know what a, a, a political game uh, redistricting is. And by the way, when I say game, I got, a, I got an email, and I thought it was a justified email, from a listener a while back who said, why do you talk about this as a game? This is serious business. And it is serious business. The issue is that it's serious business played by both parties. The party in power will always, always try to take advantage of uh, their uh, muscle to put together districts that favor them. But I think it was a fair criticism to say that this is one of the most serious exercises in our democracy. That said, Senator David Lucas had an interesting comment about redistricting. Let's listen to that as we head toward the end of today's show.
2: Listen, reapportionment is about sausage making. You got a sausage maker... And the other part is about the vegetable man. I want some collard greens, some corn, and some badaya onions, and you want to bring me rutabagas and watermelons. Now that's, that's what you're dealing with.
1: David Lucas with his own take on redistricting. We're out of time uh, for today's Political Rewind. Um, thank you so much, Riley Bunch, Tia Mitchell, Adam Van Brimmer, And uh, Kevin Riley, Kevin, very quickly, uh, you're going to be introducing and honoring tonight our colleague and friend, Jim Galloway, uh, entering the Hall of Fame at the Atlanta Press Club. We're very excited about that, aren't we?
2: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, and it's obviously a well-earned
1: honor for Jim. For sure. All right, that's it. We're completely out of time. We'll be back with a brand new show uh, tomorrow. So again, thank you, Riley, Tia, Adam, Kevin. I'm Bill Nygut. Until I see you tomorrow, please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.